Well, good morning. It is great to see you. Timothy said my name is Daniel, and I'm one of the pastors. Glad you're with us. If you're a first or second time guest, or you've been coming for a while, I'm glad you've decided to come and be with us this morning. We have been in a series of the last seven weeks in the Ten Commandments, uh, and we have been praying that God would enable us to understand that there is no wedge between God's law and God's grace, but God's law to us is His grace uh, to be in relationship and walk with Him. And uh, I hope and pray that as we've understood these commandments more and more, uh, we are not viewing them as oppressive and restrictive. They're not God's no's to us as His people, but they're God's yes to us as His people. They're, they're His yes to a good life in communion with Him. So this morning, we're going to look at the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And like other commandments that are stated negatively, there is positive implications for this commandment. So let me give you what I mean by that. Take the eighth commandment that Timothy preached on last week, thou shalt not steal. The positive is be generous with your money. Or the commandment thou shalt not murder. The positive is protect all of life. This morning we are addressing, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the positive way to state this is enjoy sex the way God created and intends. This commandment was intended to protect marriage, but it's about much more than just marriage. It is a command about our sex and our sexuality. Jesus refers to this command in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Each commandment we're seeing is much broader and deeper than than we might understand, and that is true for the seventh commandment, it's much broader. It is lust, Jesus tells us. The Greek word for lust is porneia. Sounds familiar because it's where we get the word pornography. And it means an over-desire, rather an out-of-bounds of of God's design desire. Lust is an over-sexual desire outside of God's design. If you've been here for some of the series, you've picked up on these commands and how they are a call to walk a pathway that is distinctive from how the world calls us to walk. Not for the purpose of being a self-righteous people, God forbid that, but a set-apart people who walk a pathway that is distinctive from the world, a pathway that leads us to the good life with God. The Christian's life is to be distinctive. Our love for God and our love for neighbor should set us apart. Think about some of the commandments we've already looked at. The second commandment, make no graven image. The way we worship should be distinctive. The fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath day. The way we treat the Sabbath day is to be distinctive. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. The way we're to honor our parents and all in authority is different. Sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. The way we love our neighbor by protecting all of life should be distinctive. And last week, Timothy on the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. The way we treat our money as Christians should be distinctive. And now we come to the seventh commandment. And God is saying that our sex and our sexuality as God's people is to be distinctive 
from the world's view of sex and sexuality. The commandments, and this command in particular, use the image of a blade, a scalpel, that God uses to cut us open to the ways that we are not living the good life according to our sexuality. And the reality is, if we're honest, God's people are much more shaped by the culture's view of sex than we are by God's Word. Our sex lives and our sexuality as the church doesn't look too different than the world around us. And the statistics are obvious. Infidelity inside the church is almost as high as it is outside the church. The use of pornography is almost as high inside as it is outside. And divorce is almost as high inside the church as it is outside the church. Now, I will say this as a kind of side in regards to divorce. The breaking of the seventh commandment is one of the reasons that we are given in the Bible for allowable divorce. If your spouse is committing adultery, breaking the seventh commandment, the other reason we're given is for desertion. When a spouse leaves or is absent and is not faithful to their vows, I just have to say that not all divorce is wrong. Some divorce is needed, and God gives divorce as an option for the sake of protecting the one who's being sinned against. I want to say a few things before I read Scripture and pray for us this morning. I would suggest, if you're in city groups, uh, men and women to split up this week in your city groups so that there's more transparency and more honesty fostered around this topic within your city group. The second thing I, I would like to say is that if you are struggling and wrestling with sexual issues, or if you've thrown in the towel and you no longer wrestle but you indulge and give in to what you want to do, or if you blatantly disagree with me, I would love to talk with you. Timothy would love to talk with you. We'd love to be in relationship with you around this issue. So I want to read, I'm going to pray that God would lead us this morning in a very deep and weighty issue. It's something that I know touches every person in this room, our sex and our sexuality. So if you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand, as is our custom, to read God's Word. Ask that God would speak to us. I'm going to read out of Exodus 20 and then Revelation 21. Exodus Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. God says, you shall not commit adultery. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you come and 
engage our thoughts and our hearts, the way we live our lives around such a big issue, personal issue, something that touches each and every person in this room. And so I pray that you would transform us by your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, David Wilcox is one of my favorite singer-songwriters. I've listened to him for a long time. He wrote a, a song called Strong Chemistry, and this is what he writes. I've got a weakness for strong chemi- chemistry. One touch and all my resolutions change. I can say this is no good for me, but I'm back for more of the same. High on the ecstasy, medication against the pain. Our bodies fit desperately together like a needle against a vein. Our bodies fit desperately together like a needle against a vein. Wilcox is painting a very vivid picture of how at times the way we engage romance, relationships, and sex is like an addict with a needle against a vein. That our desire can be so overwhelming, our longing sexually irresistible, it becomes for us an ultimate desire which is what the Bible calls idolatry. It is the worship of something other than God. And we've said this many times in this sermon series, is that we were all created to worship, every one of us, created to worship. The Bible's more specific is that we were created to worship God, but what we often settle for is the worship of lesser things, call those idols. This is exactly what G.K. Chesterton so profoundly wrote when he said this, when a man goes knocking on the door of a brothel, he goes looking for God. When a man goes knocking on the door of a brothel, he goes looking for God. Chesterton is saying sex, sexuality and spirituality are inseparable. Sexuality and spirituality are connected. That what we search for, hope for, long for, and engage in with our sexual pursuits can only be found in God. I know this is already grinding on our society's view of sex. So let me go ahead and add unto it a little bit. By quoting something Tim Keller said, this is something I've been learning about for a few years now, and I think he put it so succinctly. He said this, we've begun to absorb late modern Western cultural narratives about the human life. Our society presses its members to believe that you have to be yourself, that sexual desires are crucial to personal identity, that any curbing of strong sexual desires leads to psychological damage, and that individuals should be free to live as they alone see fit. Let me say that last part again. Our society presses its members to believe that you have to be yourself and that sexual desires are crucial to personal identity and that any curbing of strong sexual desires leads to psychological damage and that individuals should be free to live as they alone see fit. Here's why that's so important. Because if our sexuality is fundamentally who we are, then for people to have different moral visions about our sexuality, it becomes an attack on that person. And it becomes not only politically incorrect, but potentially hate speech. If we believe what society is pressing on us to believe, 
then a biblical vision of sex and sexuality that I want us to understand this morning will become or has already become morally offensive, which can lead people to resent God and view him as some divine tyrant. So before I jump into my main points, I have to state this, that every person, said this before, submits to some presupposed narrative of life, a narrative that when lived by determines how a person understands right and wrong. Here at Christ Central Church, we unashamedly hold to our ult- the ultimate presupposition of the Bible. We submit ourselves to the Scriptures, and so this morning I want us to look at a biblical vision of sex to understand the seventh commandment. Se- sex and sexuality will make no sense to us unless we gain a biblical vision. The whole Bible in one sense, is a story about marriage. From Genesis to Revelation, we see marriage as one of the most prominent metaphors describing God's relationship to His people. Let's go back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. God created man and woman. He created male and female in His image. Genesis chapter 2, Adam breaks out into poetic song in the creation of Eve when it says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He can't help but break out in song. And then verse 24 is that the man shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. When God made humanity, he created male and female. He made them to unite in marriage, to become one. And in doing so, they would be helpful to one another and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This means that men and women in God's design have unique, non-interchangeable glories. They each engage the world in different ways and they each do things that the other cannot do. Both reflecting the image of God. And when the two become one... This unified diversity puts on full display the image of God. Sex was created by God as a way to unite the diversity of male and female within the unity of a lifelong covenant of marriage. A friend of mine, Michael Keller, that's Tim Keller's son, quoting some Kellers this morning, said this, One of the great ironies of late modern times When we celebrate diversity in so many other cultural sectors is that we've truncated the ultimate unity in diversity, intergendered marriage. What he's saying is that in our culture, we prize diversity in politics or diversity in friendships, in education, or even in our news sources, but not so much in marriage and sexuality. It's a long intro to state the premise of my sermon. That sex was created by God as a way to unite the diversity of male and female within the unity of a lifelong covenant of marriage. We're going to look at three things this morning in regards to sex. We're going to look at the diversions of sex, the purpose of sex, and then the picture of sex. Let's look first at the diversions of sex. Our society teaches us many false narratives about our sexuality, but predominantly it teaches us that sex is about me. 
The sexuality is self-centered, what I want, what I determine, what I choose. One of the dominant narratives that we are taught is that sex is appetite. Sex is strictly about pleasure. Author Naomi Wolf wrote a book in which she was interviewing a university student who said this, we are so tightly scheduled, why get to know someone first? It's a waste of time. If you hook up, you can get your needs met and get on your way. Old episode of Friends, which I know that was a while ago, but still one of the great TV shows, Friends. Monica asked Richard, so can we still be friends and have sex? Sure, he replies. It'll be something we do together like playing racquetball. Sex is sport. Sex as natural appetite is a popular vision of sex. And it leads to the thought that we must have a sexual outlet. And if we don't, there's repression and it's harmful. Another dominant narrative that we're taught is sex is liberation. We all should have sexual freedom to to remove any external obstacle to realize our own personal desires sexually. That each person can determine what they are free to do. Another narrative I think we've been taught, often taught within the church, I was taught this in high school, is this false narrative that sex is, sex is angels. Let me explain that. that. That we deny our sexual desires. That we're to deny that we are bodies. Right? And the Bible clearly rebukes this. The Bible rebukes any view of body denial. The, the, the Bible teaches sex is good. God is pro-body. We see this in the incarnation of Jesus, the God who became flesh. We see this in the promise of the resurrection of our own bodies. Our souls and bodies go together. We're not angels. Karl Barth said we are embodied souls and ensouled bodies. God is pro-sex. If you've ever wondered about this, just read Song of Songs in the Old Testament. It's not pornographic, but it is unashamedly erotic. Any of these narratives, if they ground our vision of sexuality rather than a biblical vision rooted in God's creation, intergendered unity, male and female, God's image in this covenant of marriage, sexual prohibitions will make no sense to us. And they will feel repressive. So let me give you a few of these biblical prohibitions, homosexuality. Though acknowledging love and commitment and desire and joy and partnership and friendship does not honor the need for rich diversity of gendered humanity within sexual relationship. Same-sex relationship cannot provide this diversity for the other. Take monosexuality or sex with yourself. This is manifested in masturbation and fantasy. Though acknowledging desires and biological urges, it disregards the story of diversity and fruitfulness in this unity of commitment, and it objectifies another image bearer of God. Take adultery, manifested by sex outside of marriage, unfaithfulness to a spouse, which can be physical or emotional, an over-flirtatiousness outside the covenant commitment is also adulterous. Adulterous relationships might mingle diversity through relationship, but it's a blatant disregard for the unity of a covenant commitment in which we are made to freely give ourselves to another person. 
These are the diversions of sex. I want to look at the purpose of sex next. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The Apostle Paul writes this in chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He's talking about the physical body. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Echoing Genesis chapter 2. Sex is good. Sex is created by God. God is for pleasure. But sex is not just about the body. Sex is not just appetite. Sex is not just self-expression. It's not just a physical release. Sex has a created design. It's a sealing act, a bonding act. The Greek become one flesh means to seal or to bond. It seals the body and the soul. Sex is the sealing of two people in body, soul, and spirit. Sexuality and spirituality are connected. Listen to Peter Jansen. He wrote this, Sex is like superglue. It's a little irrational and stupid, no mind of its own, very effective if used properly. It unites and bonds with extraordinary speed, with real and deep bonding. With superglue, you must work carefully with what you want to stick together because if torn apart, it's very ugly. Make sure you know what you're trying to glue together. So let me interject here. This is why married couples should have sex. If you are not having sex within your marriage and you're withholding from each other, you're withholding something God has given you to bring about together, togetherness and intimacy and oneness. All the while, sex is nothing that can ever, ever be taken without consent. Any emotional or physical abuse is always contrary to God. Sex is about connection, not about taking. On the other hand, if you are having sex and being sexual outside the confines of God's design, be aware sex is still powerful. Sex is like superglue. It seals two people together, but if torn apart, it takes a piece of both of you with it. Some of you know this to be true in your own experience. No matter how casual of a hookup you think you had, you you left a piece of yourself with that person. And when you think about that person or you see them, something happens inside of you. Or perhaps you've come together and torn apart so many times that there's just thick scar tissue that you don't even feel it anymore. Let me give you another image of sex. This week, the weather was cold. It's a cold day today. And For me, there's nothing better than a good fire in a fireplace to warm a house when it's cold. A fireplace is designed to contain the fire, and it maximizes the benefit so that you can enjoy it to the the fullest. Marriage commitment, marriage covenant is like the fireplace. Sex is the fire. In the context of total exclusivity, you can and you should stoke the flames. So that the fire roars and blazes and brings warmth to your heart and to your home. Sex is powerful. It's beautiful. Because of that, it's designed to be in covenant relationship. Otherwise, you run the risk of burning down your house. Hookups, pornography, which one author called poison of the heart, fantasy, 
physical acts of sex outside of marriage, emotional unfaithfulness. It causes hurt and pain to yourself, to your spouse if you're married, to your future spouse if you're not, to your neighbor's spouse, and if you have children, to your children. The fire outside of the fireplace can burn the house down. It's powerful. It's not a joke. C.S. Lewis, in writing a letter to a friend in 1956, 60 years ago, that's how brilliant C.S. Lewis is, hits on the irony of how being hypersexualized leads not to the personal freedom that many of us long for, but rather into a dead-end canyon. Listen to what he writes to his friend. For me, the real evil of masturbation, and I think you can insert many examples that I've given this morning into this, the real evil would be that it takes an appetite which in lawful or proper use leads the individual out of himself to complete his own personality and that of another, finally in children and grandchildren, and turns it back, sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. And among those shadowy brides, he's always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. After all, Almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we were all born in. Lewis hits on the core contradiction of today's hypersexualized culture. That in our quest for personal freedom outside of God's design, we've created small dark prisons of our own choosing. And many of you might feel trapped this morning. You or you have felt trapped sexually. Let me just say again, if you find yourself in a dark prison, please talk to myself, to Timothy, talk to somebody. And I'll say this for all of us here this morning, because as I said earlier, this touches everybody. Nobody's unscathed this morning. We all need to hear that God offers forgiveness and God heals There is no sexual brokenness in our lives, and there is no sexual act against us that God is not powerful enough to heal and bind up. There is hope. You know, marriage was never intended to be the end-all, be-all. Marriage is meant to be a signpost to the love and faithfulness of God. Marriage is a signpost that reads, this way to glory. Have you ever read or heard people in love say, this is so much bigger than us? So so much bigger than us. Well, they're right. Marriage and sex is much bigger than us. It points people to God and to the gospel story. Remember I read Revelation 21. The Bible ends with this picture of marriage. Let me read it again. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is the people of God, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And the voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
I love what my friend Sean Slate said. He said, unlike Mormonism and country music, Christianity says marriage isn't forever. There is no marriage in heaven. Marriage in heaven is Christ and the church. The Bible teaches us that some of us will be married in this life and some of us celibate in this life, but all of us point people to the love of Christ. That's why Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. The reason is that Jesus is our bridegroom. Married, single, divorced. All of us are called to live into the story of an adoring heavenly bridegroom who rejoices over us, his bride. Let me end by giving you this picture of sex that I've already begun to describe. Again, the whole Bible is the story of marriage. Our sexuality is deeply connected to our spirituality. God is faithfully, lovingly committed to you and to me and to us. One of my favorite scriptures to read in a marriage ceremony is Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. I love getting to ordain, uh, Mary, uh, now as an ordained minister, uh, and standing beside the bridegroom when the doors open, seeing the bride and the bridegroom connect eyes. And the bride come all the way down and then lock arms together. And I love to read Isaiah 62, 5. It says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, because You've never seen a bigger smile in your life than a bridegroom holding his bride when they're about to get married. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Despite our unfaithfulness to God's design, God will never abandon us. He will never forget us. He does not abuse us, and he will not leave us. He remains committed to his covenant promise to us, and he has promised to love us and to rejoice over us. And our society tells us to let our sexuality run wild, that dignity is the freedom to choose and do whatever I want to do. But I hope you see that believing this narrative gives you the opposite of what you really long for, what I really long for, and is only found in God and in the gospel of Jesus. Our society can teach us marriage isn't a big deal. People break covenant all the time. And Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We can be taught to express ourselves by self-love, fantasy, pornography. And this says, I don't need anyone else to express love in this world. And Jesus says, my love is poured out unto you. I share myself with you. We can be taught to hook up, which says our sexual desire is appetite. Have a good time. It doesn't mean anything. And Jesus says, I'm not with you one night and gone the next. Not a one-night stand. I'm committed We can be taught having an an affair in marriage is okay because something more exciting comes along. And Jesus says nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Is there a better life than a life filled with this type of love? Is this not the good life? Is not this the life we all long for? When we understand and live into Jesus' love for us, Our sex and our sexuality will tell his story of love and faithfulness and sacrifice and giving and commitment and delight. We will honor him by obeying the seventh commandment. We're going to sing a song here 
in a minute that I, I really love called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. And the fourth verse of this song is one of my favorites. And this is what we'll sing. And I hope you'll sing it from the depth of your heart. It says, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Christ Central, we have many competing narratives about our sexuality all around us. What we need to do is we need to gaze upon the face of our bridegroom. And we need to let his penetrating, committed love change us and meet us so that we honor him with our sexuality in such a way that our lives are distinctive. And living in this way, the world might be pointed to glory, to the greatest marriage, the only eternal marriage, Jesus and his church. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would meet us with your love that will never let us go, with a love that is rich and free. God, I thank you for Christ and your unwavering, unfailing, never giving up on us, never leaving us love. It's what we all long for. And God, we all confess, I confess, to the ways in which we can look elsewhere besides you, knocking on other doors, and what we need is freely given to us and yourself. Meet us, we pray in Jesus.